Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, thank you for being with us. If you would be open your Bibles, we won't have slides for the lesson tonight. So be sure and take your Bible, be opening to first Corinthians. Uh, we'll be studying out the first few chapters of first Corinthians. If you need to borrow the Bible that's in your pew there, it'll begin around 1012 or 1013 there in your Bible. I want to share with you just a wonderful time that we had last Sunday afternoon. Uh, the melting pot class invited slash challenged the manifold class to come down to Charlie Daniels Park and enjoy a meal together, uh, which you can see there, the meal was plentiful. It was neat being with everybody and being with everybody's families. But then the challenge was to play a kickball uh, game. And, and it was a challenge of who would win. And so even ahead of time, uh, they, they came into our classroom a few Sundays before and said, here's the trophy. And, uh, and, and so when we got down there, they didn't trust us. They thought we would run off with the trophy before ever playing the game. And so they had, they had the trophy handcuffed to the picnic table there. And, and so the anticipation was building all throughout the meal. And uh, you can see this next picture, just really how uh, great the anticipation was. You may be wondering what, what's happening there. That's the coin has been tossed. There it is laying on the ground. And uh, of course, that was the two elders of the class, James Beckham and, and Dennis Nozel. And uh, they uh, really, that kind of told the tale of it all, the the. Manifold class one, the toss, and well, that's kind of how the rest of the day went. And um, we, we in the manifold class, we put our ace on the mound and, uh, and, and he took off to his work. Uh, they brought out their heavy legs and, and uh, strong legs and heavy feet and uh, they kicked it far, but that didn't matter. They put speed on the bases, that didn't matter. And finally, as the score began to get very, very lopsided, they brought out their, their heavy hitters. And um, that did help, that helped, that really helped them a lot right there. But, but what was neat, when it came time to, to give out the awards, just as they promised, they gave us our trophy. And tonight I just wanted to show you uh, the trophy. It was a, it was a, a pretty neat presentation. And um, James gave a speech kind of like Kevin Durant. It was really neat. But, um, but, but then it came time it came time, which we didn't know anything about, a second place trophy. And I just feel like you as a congregation need to know who your brothers and sisters in Christ are. This was the second place trophy. I don't have a lot more to say about that. We played fair and square. We won fair and square, but boy, the trophy sure didn't look fair and square. But, uh, but I tell you, it was a delight. We truly... Uh, all kidding aside, we want to thank the Melting Pot class. That was one of the best outings uh, that we've been a part of in a while. It really was just a pleasure being together, eating together, visiting together, being with each other's kids and, and with each other. And uh, we just want to say thank you to that class. Tremendous class, great class. And we appreciate the hospitality that was shown to us in that. God is good and what God wants us to be is united. He wants us to have the same mind and, and the same judgment. As a matter of fact, you remember in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter in verse 10, that is the clear 
clear, distinctive teaching. Now, I plead with you. Notice, Paul's going to give this to them by instruction and by authority, but he's going to begin with a begging. And he says, now, I plead with you, brethren. He still calls them brethren in the midst of all the problems they're having. They're still his brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's the authoritative part. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and here's what the command is. You all speak the same thing, that there be no division together in the same mind and in the same judgment. I can't help when I read that, but to also think of Psalm 133 and verse one, where the Lord says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. God has always wanted his people to be united. I think about in the old covenant, how it must have broken God's heart whenever the kingdom was divided and his people had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. I think about in 1 Corinthians, how it must have made God's heart break whenever he looks down and he sees the people at Corinth and of all the things they're dividing over preachers. One group is saying, no, I'm, I'm going to follow Apollos. And another, no, I'm going to follow Paul. And another says, well, we're going to follow Cephas or Peter. You see there, that's the first thing that he dealt with in verse 11. It's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus, I'm a Cephas, I'm of Christ. And then he begins to ask him, is Christ divided and et cetera? And you remember last Sunday morning when we studied this, we looked at the very bottom of that pyramid of life, if you will. And up here at the top, what we see is their behavior, their conduct is that they're following preachers and they're, they're splitting, they're dividing. And, and we say, where does this come from? Well, you remember we read 21 and we skipped down and read 25. And I'd like for you to get this because it will help us appreciate the second chapter that we're going to study tonight that we haven't yet studied. And so notice 21 and 25. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. So what he's saying there, the world through the world's wisdom did not know God. It's pleased, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. And back up in 18, it talks about the message of the cross was foolishness to those who were perishing, but it was also the power to save. And then in 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so remember, it really comes down to the base of our pyramid to what do you believe? Do you believe that the foolishness of do you believe that the wisdom of man trumps the wisdom of God? And I know sitting here in a worship service with your Bible open, it is so easy for all of us just to say, well, of course I believe that the wisdom of God trumps the wisdom of man. But that's not really what we're saying right now is just intellectually, would you say that sitting in here? The question is, will you and I go out next week and live it? Well, we make every decision saying, what has God said about this? What is the wisdom of God? And whenever the wisdom of God is frowned upon by the world and even our fleshly nature is being pulled contrary to it, what will we do then? Will we truly allow the Lord to reign in our life or will we start making excuses how God's wisdom just won't work in this particular situation? And so what he does in this chapter, and we're not going to rehearse it all. We did this a week ago, but he's showing how they started believing in the wisdom of man 
being supreme to the wisdom of God. And it caused them to discount the message of the cross. And because of that, it led them, instead of having the one mind of Christ, they instead had division. They began to compare preachers to preachers or apostles to other preachers. And so the end of this chapter, look at verse 31. As it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And you see, that goes back to even what we were talking about and studying about this morning in the third chapter. We can either glory in men, remember, boast in men. We can glory in men and men's wisdom, or we can glory in God's wisdom. And so tonight we want to pause right now as, as using this as a backdrop that's leading us, of course, to the second chapter. We just read the last verse of the first chapter. We want to ask this question. If I really do choose to live by the wisdom of God, where do we gain the wisdom of God? It's interesting how quickly people today will speak about being spiritual. They will talk about living a spiritual life. And in many people's minds and in the context in which they speak today, they do not use that word or that, that even the, the phrases that would be attached to that word, spiritual living, spiritual life, etc. They do not use it in the way that it is used here in Scripture. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at a few verses in the second chapter and I want us to see what is it or where is it that we can find the wisdom of God and in finding that we also learn what is it to be spiritual. First, Paul uses himself as an example to them because remember he was the one that first came into Corinth and he taught them. And so he talked about how when he came in among them that he preached, you see at the end of verse two, he didn't preach anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, that's the gospel. So he's saying all I preached to you was the gospel. And notice what he said in, in three, he did this in weakness and fear and much trembling. And literally, he was afraid to go in. It was such a wicked city. And look at verse four, and he was alone. Look at verse four and five. And he says, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. See, this is where he's tying in what the foundation of the first chapter is. He's tying it in now to the second chapter. And he says, I didn't come with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of what? Of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So he says, listen, I could have come in and I could have took the message of the cross and I could have tried to figure out like which way is the wind blowing culturally. Oh, you don't want a Messiah that's been crucified. Let me soften that and let me kind of talk around that and let me try to put some wisdom of men that would come out of your culture to make, to make this message a, a little more appropriate to your wisdom. He didn't do that. As a matter of fact, he boldly says, I didn't try to attach any of your wisdom to the message of the cross. And in that, he says, I wanted you to have, see there in verse five, your faith, your faith, what are you gonna believe in? See, now we're back to the first chapter. Are you gonna have faith in the wisdom of men? You have faith in the wisdom of God. He says, I want your faith to be in the wisdom of, man, of God and I want it to be in power. And that's a key that's gonna go all the way through uh, the four chapters here also is wisdom and empower. Uh, beautiful things in six, seven, and eight, but for time's sake, 
let's, let's go down to verse 10. And what he's talked about in six, seven, and eight is the fact that we wouldn't know it unless it's revealed to us. And so he's going to say that a little more clearly in verse 10. So where are you gonna get the wisdom of God from? But God has revealed to them, to, God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of the man, which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Let's pause there for a moment. How do you know so much about human beings? Well, that's obvious, isn't it? That's what Paul's saying, it's real obvious. You're a human being. You have the spirit of man in you. Of course you know things about man. He says, now, how many of you know the things about God? And he says, Paul's there. Don't give me anything that the spirit hasn't already revealed. Wouldn't that be a neat test to take? How much can you tell us about God that God has not revealed about himself? Do you realize you get out a piece of paper and you can ponder for days and you cannot write anything, not one thing about God unless God has revealed it. He re he's revealed some things about himself in nature. You look at the Smoky Mountains, you look at the sunrise, you look at a newborn baby, you look through a telescope and you see the universe and God has chosen in those things to reveal some things about him. But if God doesn't reveal it, you and I know nothing about God. You remember our pyramids? In the second chapter, here's one of the things I want you to see if you believe this or not. It's what the word of God is teaching. I want you to see if you believe this. Are you convicted? Do you believe and out of that belief will form convictions. Do you believe that you know nothing of God unless he reveals it? Now, if you believe that, you're gonna stop saying things like, oh, I think God wouldn't mind if I do X, Y, Z. What do you mean? Have you gone and looked to see what God has said about it? Or do you think you can just speak for God? We have communities full of people that are very comfortable speaking for God. In their mind, some way, they think they know things of God that God's never revealed. And so I need to, I need to test myself tonight. What do I believe? God says you don't know anything about him unless he's revealed it to you. And so can that be the first level of your pyramid? Or are you one of these people that says, oh, I think there's a lot of things about God I just know just because I know them. And that's when people, they list sins that they participate in. And then they'll say, oh, I think God wants me to do that because God wants me to be happy. Oh, really? God's revealed that to you. He didn't reveal it to anybody else. All right, so let's, let's keep reading here. Look at verse 12. Now, he, he's writing here, obviously, as an apostle. And he says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us. These things we also speak. Now, you notice that chain there? So verse 12 is the Holy Spirit gave it to the apostles. And then he says, now as apostles, we speak it to you. And so here it is in 13. These things we also speak. Not, of word, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Remember the first verse we studied this morning in the third chapter? 
He wanted to talk with them in the third chapter in verse one about spiritual things and they were too immature to handle it. This is leading up, of course, to that in the third chapter. The natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For he who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So notice, he went from this idea of revelation, and we won't take the time to read this right now, but if you're making notes and you want to study something, go over to Revelation, the third chapter. I'm sorry, Ephesians, the third chapter. And look at it beginning about verse three and four and five. And what's interesting is Paul there talks about a message that he received by revelation. And he says, when I write it, and you read it, you know what has been revealed to me. That is what is being implied here. He says, the Holy Spirit has given us a message. We speak it and now you know it. But then he takes it by application and goes a step further. You see, if you believe that, now we're up to that next level of the pyramid and that is what's your convictions. And he says, now, if you believe that, what you're going to do is you're going to be spiritual and you're going to judge things to see if it is an alignment with the spirit of God. Now, if you miss that, look again at 15. But he who is spiritual judges all things that he himself is rightly judged by no one. In other words, all we're concerned about is would God say what we have done is right? Now, why would he emphasize that right there? Well, because the world is going to look at the righteousness of God and what are they going to say? We saw that in the first chapter. They're going to say it's foolishness. And so we can't look to the world and say, hey, what should I do in this situation? Because the world is going to look at the wisdom of God and call it foolishness. And so he says, those who receive the word of God, they're going to be the ones who use it to spiritually discern all things. Do you do that each day? Do you spiritually discern everything you do? He said, he said, all things. You know, it's interesting how some people grow somewhat comfortable in a warped view of Christianity. And it's the idea that some way God is comfortable with us being casual and we use the spiritual teachings of God more as a loose guideline. And it really doesn't matter if we spiritually discern all things well, let's take God at face value here. God says, I want you to spiritually discern all things. The small decisions you make tomorrow and the big decisions you make. The decisions that you might in some way of thinking think, well, that's just a secular decision. And really for a Christian, there's no such thing as a secular decision. For a Christian, we look at everything through the lenses of spirituality. And so it is with that in mind is why he begins the third chapter by saying, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people. You see, they hadn't received the word of God and said, we are going to look at everything in life with spiritual discernment. But you remember, and I know some of this is what I'm about to say is rehashing over the past few weeks. But in 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with problem after problem after problem. But you remember, we said we're going to study through 1 Corinthians looking at solutions. And so here he's giving them the solution. 
In other words, look at the problem you have. And instead of viewing that problem with a secular mindset, look at it from a spiritual mindset that says, what has God said on this topic? And whatever God has said on it, again, now we go back to this. Are we really going to count the wisdom of God, the way to live? Are we going to start dismissing it? And if we start dismissing it and saying, oh, it won't work in this situation or I don't want to apply it in this. Really what we're saying is the wisdom of man trumps the wisdom of God. And what does that do? That goes to this morning's lesson, third chapter. When we start operating like that, it leads us to being immature, to us having divisions because of envy, strife, that leads to division. And so what's the answer? Well, the first chapter and the third chapter mirror each other in ways. Remember what the answer is in the third chapter? Look at verse 18, 19, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age or in this world, let him become a fool that he might become wise for the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. Remember we studied that this morning, but what I wanted you to see it again right now is I want you to see how the first chapter and the third chapter parallel each other and both of them are teaching the very same thing. You pull from the wisdom of God, you can have unity. You pull from the wisdom of man, you're going to have contention, strife, and division. You pull from the wisdom of God, you're going to have a spiritual life, and that spiritual life is going to cause you to look at everything you do and judge it to see if you are handling it in a spiritual way. When we live by the way of man, we look at everything not spiritual. Remember this morning, third chapter, we look at it carnal. And we start looking at everything based upon on whatever would be the, the desires of the flesh and what that causes us to do to look at people. And we become in our minds competitive with each other. And that leads to division. So we see that one and three, that's the principle. And chapter two tells us where this wisdom comes from. But now let's quickly look at chapter four. And I want you to see this. In the fourth chapter, what he's going to do is he's going to say, hey, there's been some divisions over us as leaders. Let me tell you a proper way to look at us. How should we perceive our leaders? And it's a lesson in how leaders ought to perceive themselves. And think there's a lot of levels of leadership. You as fathers, husbands, how should you be perceived? How do you look at your leadership? If, if you're an elder or a minister or a deacon or a Bible class teacher, that leadership you have, that influence you have, how should you be perceived? How do you perceive yourself? Let's go to the fourth chapter. Because remember, he's just talked in the third chapter about them dividing over, remember, Apollos and Paul and Peter. And, and the summary of that in 23 of the third chapter, the summary was, and you are Christ. In other words, we ought not be dividing. Remember, uh, another real revealing verse was in the third chapter in 21. Let no one boast in men. See, that's what leads to the division. But now notice this in the fourth chapter in verse 1 and 2. Here, here's how we're supposed to be viewed. Paul says, look at us this way. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Did you notice that first phrase? Let a man so consider us as servants. In other words, Paul says, you've been considering us in a wrong perspective because you've been dividing over us. He showed them the wisdom of man, the wisdom of God. 
And he says, now in the wisdom of God, here's the way you should have been looking at us. In the New Testament, there are about six different words that are sometimes translated minister or servant. This particular word is very interesting that he uses here. In the original Greek, this word, when he says, this is the way you ought to view us, this is the way you ought to consider us, he says, as servants of Christ. This word here in its original Greek is a two-part word. The first part means under, and the second part of the word means rower. And it is the idea of the old Mediterranean ships, the big ships, that on the sides of the ships, they would have the oars, and maybe you've seen pictures of them. They would have the oars coming out of the sides of the boat. Maybe you've seen a picture like that. And, and uh, of course, this particular picture, the, the front of it, if you will, has kind of been ripped off of the boat so that you can look inside the boat. In an actual boat, you wouldn't be able to see those people. And so what Paul does is he refers to the ones that were on the third level down, the under rowers. And he says, you have been putting us up on some kind of pedestal and dividing over us. He says, the way you should have been looking at us is Paul, Apollos, Peter. We are just under rowers. In other words, we're completely out of sight. We sit down in the bottom of a dark ship and we row upon command. Whatever order has been given to us, we row. Nobody can see us. We can't see around. And we are one of hundreds underneath there. Under rowers. Godly leaders don't steer the ship. Christ steers the ship. One mind that we've been studying about for four chapters. Godly leaders don't set the course. Christ sets the course. What do godly leaders do? Godly leaders humble themselves in the place that God places them and says, I'll work as you have me to work. That's the same mindset that Paul had in mind when in the third chapter in verse 7, don't look at it lightly when he says in the third chapter in verse 7, so then neither he who plants, and remember he's just talked about Paul and Apollos both in verse five and in verse six. See in six, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Now look in seven. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God gives the increase. You see what he's saying in the third chapter? It is God that gives us that increase. It's God who we worship. If we're going to glory, remember at the end of the third chapter, we're not going to boast in men, we're going to glory in God. And so now he comes in the fourth chapter and he says, consider us this way. We are just servants that work on the very bottom of a boat and we row whenever we've been told to row. Why would you divide yourselves over us when you should be united with the one who steers the ship? You ought to be united with the one who owns the ship. You ought to be having the mind of Christ. Now, does that mean that there's no responsibility underneath there? No, that was the rest of the first and the second verse of the fourth chapter. He says we're stewards. In other words, we take serious the responsibility he, he has given us and it belongs to the Lord, stewardship. It's still not our ship. It's not our oars. 
we do what God has asked us to do. It's his work. And then you have to love verse two. It is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And so notice, Paul doesn't just kind of undermine them as if there's nothing to their life. He says, sure, we devoted our life as servants. We devoted our lives as stewards and we devoted our life to be faithful. But all of the emphasis is up on him. And see, their problem was they were placing all the emphasis upon those men. And so in this chapter, he's making a plea and we'll skip down. Uh, notice how he just clarifies that in three and four, the fourth chapter. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. So he says, look, when it comes to me determining how I'm gonna live, and, and you realize why he's doing this, right? He's already spent three chapters talking about the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. And so he says, you think I'm gonna to listen to what a man says about how to live my life? Do you think I'm going to listen to what a human court says about how to live my life? He says, I don't even listen to what I would say. Now that's interesting because a lot of us do that and we're soft on ourselves. And he says, I don't even judge myself. He says, I have one. Now we're back to kingdom, the Lord reigning over us. He says, I have one judge. It's not man, it's not a human court, and it's not me. The Lord is my judge. What a beautiful view of leadership. And so with that strong influence, he says in 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, he looks at them as his children, I warn you, he gives them this strong warning. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, a lot of tutors, a lot of teachers, yet you do not have many fathers. Remember, he was the one that went and taught them the gospel at first. So that's why he can say the next phrase. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you. That's the word for birth. I've given birth to you. I have begotten you. How? Through the gospel. Remember in the second chapter, I came to you. I preached the gospel. I didn't do it with human wisdom. I preached the gospel to you. And so now he's reminding them, look what I did and look what saved you. And now look what you're doing. I brought you the gospel with no human wisdom. And now you're looking a lot more like you're following human wisdom and you're setting the gospel aside. That's not how you were born into Christ. That's not how you were saved. And so that's why he can say this very bold statement in verse 16. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Fathers, if your children followed you everything that you have done over the past year, and they lived the life that you lived, would they be growing closer to God? If your children imitated you in what you did this past year, would they know the scriptures better? Would they be faithful to God? Would they be true to their family? Would they be people of integrity? Mothers, can you say to your children, imitate me? 
If you can walk like I walk, we'll all spend eternity together. Brothers and sisters in Christ, can you look around at your church family and say, imitate me. Let's spend eternity together. Can our elders say, imitate me. We're, we're going to spend eternity together. Listen, for four chapters, for four chapters, he's been trying to drive home verse after verse, teaching after teaching from the first chapter in verse 10. You don't have the mind of Christ. There's division among you. And he says all of this to finally come around to this to say, would you just look at how I've lived? Let's get this right. And so I want to close with reminding you that our annual theme this year is, is kingdom living. And so Paul knows that he's, or at least he's hoping that he's going to be able to go visit them again. And what he's hoping is that this letter, that they'll receive it and read it and set their lives in order so that when he comes, it can be a pleasant visit. In other words, he would like for all that to be in order so that when he comes, he doesn't have to take all of his time to try to set these things in order. And so notice what he says in verse 18. Now, some of you are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. See where we come back to that again? Now notice this next phrase. This is beautiful for our annual study this year. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. He says, I don't want to just receive word back from you that says, oh yeah, yeah, we are really faithful Christians. He says, that's not the way the kingdom of heaven operates. The kingdom of heaven is powerful. It changes lives. It changes influences. The kingdom of heaven is so powerful that when people are truly living a kingdom life, it cannot be hid. I'm not making trite of it, but it's as if he's using an expression that we use today sometimes. Talk is cheap. That's what he's saying here. Paul has spent four chapters and now he's summing up this topic of the fourth chapter after four chapters and he's saying to them, don't just talk about it. Are you going to live by the wisdom of God? Are you going to live by the wisdom of man? Are you going to look what's been revealed? And are you going to spiritually discern everything? Are you going to grow and mature? Are you going to start looking at leaders in a right perspective? It's not about man. It's about God. You want to lead your family right? Don't make your family about your family. Make your family about God. You want the Mount Juliet congregation to be right? Don't make the Mount Juliet congregation about the Mount Juliet congregation. Make the Mount Juliet congregation about God. You want your life to be right? Don't make your life about yourself. Make your life about God. And that's what Paul has been saying for four chapters. And then finally he says, forget talking about it. Just start living it. The kingdom is a power. Tonight, does your life have and exemplify that power. God's not looking for somebody that'll just talk it. 
God's looking for transformed lives. This evening, if we can help you in any way with that transformation, if you're ready to become a Christian or if you need to be restored or if you have questions that you just need further study, if you have something that you want to pray,